2: From
3: HowStuffWorks.com Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles W. Chuck Bryant, and there's guest producer Josh over there. So you put the three of us together, and we're going to get a little true crime history on (laughs) you with the trial of Sacco and Vanzetti.
1: Yeah, these guys... uh, I mean, a little backstory on... I guess the time, we're talking about uh, the 1920s in the United Mm -hmm. States. Right. We're talking about uh, two gentlemen that were both anarchists, that were both Italian immigrants, and uh, both supposedly um, followers of this really notable anarchist named Luigi Galliani, who uh, this guy was – Sort of an anarchist leader. He put out an anarchist rag. He was um, called for violence. Um, he has a history of authorizing like bombings, assassination mm-hmm. attempts, um, like really tough stuff. Right. And so this is who um, supposedly Sacco and Vanzetti were, you know, I guess by association advocating – advocating? <laughs> sure. Advocating for this type of violence themselves – As immigrant anarchists.
3: Do you remember in our uh, anarchism episode? Like during this period, in like a 10-year period, anarchists assassinated like five or six major heads of state around the world, including McKinley in uh, the United States. It was a big deal. It was was a big deal. And... um, I mean there was also a struggle going on for the soul of America were we going to be socialists were we going to be capitalists should we just go with anarchism um there was a a lot of uh, a lot of debate over you know which which economy we should go with or what what politics we should go with and th- there was something of a red scare because communism was on the table too there was a red scare at the time too so it wasn't like the kind of time you would walk around like, "Yeah, I'm an anarchist." No, get on board, you know. But and at the same time, if you weren't an anarchist, you're probably scared of anarchists because they would bomb stuff, and they were well known for it too.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, this is not just the United States. Like all over the world, mm-hmm. um, there were political radicals. Uh, there was uh, violence from anarchy and and riots, and like you said, people trying to take down like politicians or judges. That were deporting, at least in the United States, deporting immigrant anarchists back to their home countries, like as quickly as they could root them out, basically. Right, right. So this is it's, sort of the stage in the early 1920s, um, and I guess we should hop in the way back machine. Oh yes, let's and head on over to Boston town.
3: <laughs> okay,
1: <laughs> that's Boston, by the way.
3: Yeah, no, I know. Oh, okay. It doesn't matter if I know. Just make sure the Wayback Machine knows what you're talking about. Oh, the Wayback Machine knows. It, it can read my silly accents. So so here we are. It's 1920 around Boston. Actually, we're not in Boston proper. We're about 10, 10 miles south in the little town of Braintree.
1: Yeah, which, which is no- these days would be Boston proper. So, I mean, you know, more yeah, or less.
3: Yeah, yeah. It's like the metro Boston area, sure. right? Um, And Braintree was known as a shoe manufacturing center. It had more than one shoe... Company, which meant it was a shoe manufacturing center, mm-hmm. and um, on this particular day in April of 1920, I think it was April 15th, right? Correct. In Braintree, there was a dude named Shelley Neal, who was an agent for the American Express Company, and the function I got of Shelley Neal was that he would—he was kind of like a um, a Brinks armed guard, yeah, like basically. A, a
1: courier. <clears throat> for money.
3: <laughs> and not just some money, like a lot of money. Yeah. On On this day from the 9.18 a.m. train from Boston, Shelly Neal went to the Braintree, uh, the Braintree train depot and picked up $30,000, 30 grand in cash, which is uh, about $427,000 in 2018 money. Yeah, he did this every week. Right. Um, he picked it up, and he took it back to his office, and um, he opened up a, a metal box, and inside it had two, two canvas bags, and each was the payroll for um, one of the two shoe companies that he picked up money for, one of which was called Slater and Morel. I'm not sure what the other one was. Maybe it was 3K. Definitely Slater and Morel was one of them.
1: The other was New Balance.
3: Okay. Yes. So Slater and Muriel and New Balance were the ones whose payroll he had on him that day.
1: Yeah. And it's it's so amazing how that stuff used to work back then. Like
0: Mm
1: -hmm. how payroll was just so lo-fi. It would literally be a huge amount of cash delivered in a box that he would take to an office. Mm -hmm. And someone would sit there and stuff cash into envelopes to then go to like a factory to pay off employees. Not pay off, but... To pay, <laughs> right. to pay them their their legit check from working. You didn't see nothing right? <laughs> this, this week. This is for all the shoe leather. Right. So that's how it worked back then. And so this is what he was doing. It's just like any other Thursday. Mm-hmm. Um, however, on this day, as he went in, he noticed a, a car out front that he had not seen before, this big car that had like these little uh, curtains on the inside windows that were mm-hmm. pulled shut. And other people in Braintree Um, later on would report seeing that car kind of tooling around, and they said it looks like it's got like four or five men inside that look Italian, and they're just sort of driving around Braintree, which I guess to raise some suspicions? Sure,
3: because again, if you were Italian, um, you may have been uh, associated with anarchists, who were associated with bomb throwing. So four or five of them kind of aimlessly driving around the town of Braintree, this little tiny town, I'm sure aroused some suspicions, and definitely did because there were a lot of people who later on said that they saw this car driving around between 9 a.m. and 12 p.m.
1: That's right. So about 3 that afternoon, um, here's what happened next for payroll. Uh, These people had to get these envelopes, so what's known as a paymaster— And this is also sort of part of the armed guard thing Mm -hmm. um, because the paymaster, A, has a gun and then has a guard with a gun. Uh, This guy's name was Freddie Parmenter, and the guard was Alessandro Berardelli. And so they stop by. They pick up all these envelopes. They're going down to the factory. They're going to pay everybody. And all of a sudden, bam, 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 gunfire and mayhem (laughs) ensues.
3: I didn't realize there was going to be special effects in this episode. <laughs> hey, well,
1: you know. I tried to bring so,
3: it. So, you did, man. It has been <laughs> broughted. Um So, these guys are on Pearl Street and when these shots suddenly just uh, ring out. And um, the first guy's hit. Berardelli's hit. Uh, and he goes down. I believe it was Berardelli who was hit first. Um, oh, no, he wasn't hit. It was Parmenter who was hit. Berardelli is on the ground um, and he has lost his gun, and he's, he's being approached by a man with a gun on him. And uh, Berardelli apparently has begged for his life to no avail. The man shoots him in the chest at least once, and the bullet um, punctures his lungs, uh, one of his uh, major arteries to his heart, yeah. and then lodges lodges itself in its hip to be fished out later on by a coroner and used in the case against Sacco and Vanzetti. Uh, the other guy, Parminer, the paymaster, uh, he gets hit a few times, staggers across the street, and um, and collapses. And this car, a, a blue touring car, um, which is, you know, a big sedan that you would think of today, like a, a touring, we'll call it a Lincoln Town car, even though that's not at all what it was. <laughs> that blue car that had been seen kind of driving, driving around. <laughs> right. Okay. That's another way to put it. It was a Buick. Yeah. The, the, but the same one that had been seen driving slowly around Braintree all morning suddenly pulls up and the guys who had shot these, these two men and taken the money, about $15,000, um, hopped in and it drove off and everyone lost sight of it.
1: Yeah, and very uh, importantly, the man who shot Berardelli had a, a hat, a felt cap on. Right. So just remember that little fact. Um, There were eyewitnesses all over the place. It's not like no one saw this happen. Like dozens of people saw this. Yeah, Uh, it was a a daring daylight robbery at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Daring do. Right. Uh, A man named Jimmy Bostock was one of the witnesses. Apparently, Berardelli like died in his arms. And like all people in the 1920s didn't know any better. He immediately started messing with the crime scene. Started right. picking up gun shells. Another guy came by and picked up the hat. And you know, they just didn't know any better at the time, I guess.
3: Right. So um the the, the this crime scene has been totally messed up, but the cops show up because again, this is a big deal. This is a small town. And something close to $220,000 had just been stolen and two men murdered for it in this little tiny town. So it was a big deal. And the cops showed up and probably the first thing they said was anarchists. <laughs> Maybe. I'll bet. That's kind of what they would say, I think, at the time.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Should we take a break? Jeez, okay, already. Yeah, I think so. Th- I mean, this falls into uh, Acts and that's definitely Act 1. Okay. All right. So dead men in the street, the cops are on the scene. Message brand. and and scene. <laughs>
2: perfect home sweet home
1: Is it and scene or end scene Chuck <laughs> We've talked about this a lot
0: mm-hmm.
1: And scene So
3: an not a. end scene <laughs> Nope Cause it makes sense you know You do in the scene Right. So, um, by this, saying the, and seen. <laughs> so the, uh, the, the cops have shown up. They're investigating the place. Um, they're not really finding anything aside from what the witnesses have already kind of gathered up and are now holding out to them in their outstretched palms. Right. Like, here's your evidence, copper. Um, but the, uh, the, the car is searched for all over. And it's not found. It just totally disappears for a couple of days. Um, and the uh, the it turns up a couple of days later in the woods, I believe, south of uh, Braintree in a place called Bridgewater, which is a little even further south from Boston. I think it's another like 10 or so miles down south from, um, from Braintree.
1: Right. I think Bridgewater only had seven Dunkin' Donuts. So it was a small town.
3: Right. And so, remember when I said the cops were probably, like, anarchists? I knew it. Mm -hmm. Um, There was another daylight robbery of payroll, and I found somewhere that it said it was successful. I found somewhere else that it was unsuccessful, but both of them agreed there had been no loss of life whatsoever. But it was similar enough, and it had happened, like, uh, two years or a year before. Um, It was similar enough that the cops immediately thought of the people they'd been thinking of for this uh, for this earlier crime. They thought, this is clearly the work of the same people.
1: Yeah, and um, when they found this car in the woods, very importantly, the the license plates had been ripped off. Mm-hmm. And there were other tire tracks nearby. So it seemed pretty obvious that, uh, you know, they ditched this car, get in another one. The officer on the scene said, Marty, I think this is the car. Mm-hmm. From the brain tree murder.
3: All I can think of is Jeremy Renner in, in the town. <laughs> sure. That's that's what I think of when I think Boston.
1: Yeah, that, that, everyone thinks of that. <laughs> sure. So um, another thing's going on in parallel, so we need to set this up. Um, also on April 15th, which is the day of, of those murders, mm-hmm. um, there was a guy named uh, Ferruccio Cochi. And he lived in Bridgewater. He was an anarchist. He was being deported. Uh, so he quits his job, you know, to be deported, um, does not show up to be deported. Uh, he calls the immigration service after that on the 16th and said, uh, you know, my wife is a sick, so I have to tend to her. We and they said so
3: much email about that." <laughs> uh, am I going to get in trouble for that now? No, you won't get in trouble. Everybody loves your Italian accent.
1: Please tell me you can still do an Italian accent, Right. I think so. We're going to find out after this episode. Because um, I'm just doing the accent. Sure. Not saying, like, they're all mobsters, because, like, you know, the Sopranos got in trouble for that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> did they Did they say all Italians were mobsters? No, but, I mean, I remember they're just being hay about from the Italian-American community. Like, why is it every time in movies we're just mobsters? Oh, I could see that, you know? Sure. I mean, I could see them, Yeah. But these aren't even mobsters. No, they're anarchists. (laughs) Right. So he's being deported. He doesn't go. He calls them and says, my wife is sick. And they said, fine. Uh, We're going to check out your story, though. They found that his wife was not sick and that all of a sudden he's saying, okay, it's fine, actually. I'm really ready to go, like, now. Yeah, Um, come on. Come on. Can you get me out of the country quickly? And they're like, well, you should probably, like, leave some money with your wife. He's like, no, 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 she's good. Let's just go. Yeah. And so they're like, hmm, all right, this is a little odd. So, um, so, let's maybe let's he's get, involved
3: can i Can I paint the scene a little bit though? I want to go back over and highlight two things that you've mentioned so far. Sure. One, this was a time <laughs> where to cover up a crime, all you had to do was remove the license plates on the car you ditched. That was it. You just confounded the cops forever. Well, that helped. And then secondly, if you were to be deported, all you had to do was not show up, but then call them the next day and say your wife was sick. And, and immigration and naturalization would say, sure,
1: no problem. Well, no, they re- they investigated immediately.
3: Okay. But I'm just <laughs> saying, like, this is, things have changed a tad, sure. I think, is what I'm trying to say. Hold on, let me, let me see. Josh, what are you trying to say? Are you trying to say that? Yeah, I'm trying to say that. Okay, <laughs> cool. Yes, that's exactly what I'm
1: trying to say. It's weird because you looked on both of your shoulders at the devil and the angel. <laughs>
3: Right, they, but they won't shut up, Chuck.
1: <laughs> so uh, they sum, they summarize. You know, it's all coming together. This guy's acting weird.
3: This well, he's is on also, the sixteenth. He's also Chuck, one of those people that they liked for that that um, robbery the the year before, which is one of the reasons why he, they they had their intent up about this guy in the first place.
1: Right. So he's a suspect. Right. Uh, the cops go to uh, specifically. Um, Michael Stewart, police chief, said, I'm going to go back to his house. I'm going to see what else I can find out from this guy. He shows up, and there's a dude there named Mike Boda who mm-hmm. says, yeah, sure, you can look around. You can look in the house, go back and look in the garage, it's a two-car garage shed, no problem. Uh, I usually have my car there. It's in Overland, but it's in the shop uh, getting repaired. And Stewart goes out there, and, and it's like, all right, so here's where the Overland Park's. But there's some really big tire tracks next to the overland uh, and the second stall that Mm -hmm. look like they would probably fit this large Buick that was so mysteriously kind of tooling around around the time of this murder. Right. And this cop,
3: Stewart, goes, hmm, I'm going to make a mental note of that. And that's what he did. (laughs) He uh, he asked about the uh, the. The other car, I don't know if you said, Boda said that his other car was at the garage being repaired. Correct. So um, so Stewart, uh, the, who's the police chief of Bridgewater, I think he, I get the impression that he's kind of new. There was another one who kind of factors into this case tangentially later on, um, who was the former police chief. So I get the uh, impression that Michael Stewart was fairly new. But he's investigating this case. He likes Kowachi. He's now met Mike Boda, who he's suspicious of, too. Um, he goes back to talk to Boda some more, to this place where Kowachi lived. Uh, as Boda's roommate, I guess away from his wife and kids, I'm not sure why Koachi was renting this place. Are we going with Koachi now? <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure that's it. I took Italian in college and I'm almost 100% sure it's Koachi. Okay. Do you remember from our dyslexia episode where Italian is extremely easy to learn because there's just very few ways to to write things to write the phonemes? Mm-hmm. One of the reasons it is easy is because it's kind of like Polish. It's in most most cases it's actually easier than Polish, but it's pronounced just like it's spelled, except for the ci is a ch sound. Okay. So Koachi. Okay. Okay. All right. That was your Italian lesson. I appreciate that after all these years. The other lesson, Chuck, me. not all Italians or Italian-Americans are mobsters. That's you, your other Italian not. lesson. No.
1: Okay. So um, I've known a bunch she, of Italians, Amer- Italian-Americans, and none of them were mobsters. Bam. There you go. Um, so...
3: Uh, Police Chief Stewart goes back to talk to Boda and things get really suspicious too, don't they? Because he shows up and (laughs) and knocks on the door and the door just swings open onto an empty apartment. (laughs) And Stewart spends about 15 minutes going, Boda, Mr. Boda, (laughs) hello, Mr. Boda. And he finally takes a couple steps in and realizes Boda's gone.
1: That's right. So he, uh, he goes by the garage where he, the guy said that his car was in the Mm -hmm. shop uh, goes over there. The car's still there. So that checked out. And he told the owner, whose name was Simon Johnson, he said, hey, if anyone uh, comes to get this car, just give us a call. And the guy says, mental note, call COPS if someone comes to get this car.
3: Jeremy Renner.
1: Um, so on May 5th, this is what, a couple of weeks later, um, a man comes to the door. And this is at, I believe this is, it says 9 o'clock, but that's at night, right?
3: Yeah, the I, I couldn't tell at first and then
1: um It feels the, like night.
3: Yeah, it says also that the, the wife is, is um illuminated by a motorcycle oh. headlight. Well, there so you I have would it. guess at night. Yeah.
1: All right. So it's unless it's very dark in the morning. <laughs> right. So at nine o'clock at night, uh this guy shows up uh to the owners of the garage's door, knocks on the door, his young wife answers. Uh the guy says that he's Mike Boda. I'm here to pick up my car. Uh, that Overland over there. And the owner of the garage comes and tells his wife, and he says, go call the police. You know, we don't have a phone. Go next door, call the cops. She leaves out the back door and is caught, like you said. There's this motorcycle sitting outside. She also sees, with a sidecar, also sees a couple of guys that she said were speaking Italian, kind of hanging around. Mm-hmm. So it's all sort of adding up at this point to uh, something fishy.
3: Yeah, so... um I guess the fact that um, that Simon uh, Johnson, the the shop owner or the mechanic, was stalling
1: made Boda a little uneasy. Sure. So
3: he took off without the car, right?
1: Yeah, he jumped in the sidecar and was out of there. Okay, here's
3: where things get super critical for a pair of guys named Sacco and Vanzetti. There were two other those, other, those two other guys that Ruth Johnson, Simon Johnson, the mechanic's wife, said she saw um, hanging out, waiting for Mike Boda to get his car. They split, too. Now, they're suddenly, like, on foot. There's no motorcycle or car for them, so they have to leave on foot. So they walk over toward the direction of the uh, Bridgewater rail line, Yeah, and she says that she saw them get on the train or at least go toward the train station. I, or no the rail car so I think it might have been like a street car kind of thing yeah so somehow Chief Stewart gets word of this uh, I think he shows up he gets word of this and he calls a the um the police chief in the next town over in Brockton and says, hey, there's going to be a pair of Italian guys on the streetcar. When the, when the, when the streetcar stops in, or the rail car stops in your town, get them. They are wanted for questioning and a murder robbery. And so the Brockton police board the train when it arrives in Brockton, and there are two Italian men sitting there. And the two men's names were Nicola Sacco and Bartolomeo Vanzetti, and they just happened to be Italian, and they just happened to be anarchists, and they both happened to be strapped when the cops came on the rail car and started asking them questions.
1: Yeah, Sacco had a 32 Colt, uh, and Van City had a 38 Harrington and Richardson, which uh, very uniquely had five uh, chambers instead of six. It's very it unusual. Seem,
3: seems unique, yeah.
1: Yeah, I don't even know how that works. I would have to see this kind of revolver because six yep. is a nice even number for a round thing. I don't, I don't get it. But yeah, regardless. no one ever
3: says like, "Don't point that five shooter at me." <laughs> it's always six shooter, you know. Yeah, that's weird. Although maybe, know. maybe a five shooter is what they're talking about when they call it a pea shooter.
1: No, nah, that's not what they mean. But it was the nineteen twenties, and there were all kinds of weird guns back then.
3: Right. Okay. So these these two Italian immigrants. Uh, who were anarchists and who were carrying guns, had one other big problem. They uh, were giving some pretty weak and ever-evolving stories uh, in answer to the questions that the cops were asking them. They get hauled into the police station, I believe in Bridgewater um, or Braintree. Do you know which one it was? I think it was. I think it was Braintree. Actually, they got taken to Braintree because it was Stewart who was investigating him. So they get taken to Braintree, and Police Chief Stewart um, questions them. But then, so too does the um, the Chief Prosecutor for the area, a guy named Frederick uh, Katzman, who would play an enormous role in this case as well.
1: Yeah. So he was the DA, and he. The, I think the key fact that really sold him was. He found out that on April fifteenth, on the day of these murders, Saka was not at work at the Three K Shoe Factory, right? And uh, he said, "You know what? <laughs> That's enough for me. We have no real evidence or anything else. But you are Italian, uh, Italian American anarchists. You weren't at work that day, so let's go ahead and haul you in here,
3: right? Because yeah, we left off the fact that they found like um, anarchist pamphlets on the on the men." When they, when they took him off the train. So, there was a lot against them, going against them at this point, um, just from the outset of this. But you kind of touched on it. All of this is very, very circumstantial.
1: Yeah, so right away, the anarchists of um, of the area come on board. Uh, they form the sacco Vincetti Defense Committee. <laughs> and one of their leaders, one of the anarchist leaders in the area named Carlo Tresca... Said, "All right, let's hire this uh, this lawyer from California. This guy's a radical. Uh, he's going to lead our defense." And Moore comes on board. Fred Moore like, "Here's the way we're going to do this: is let's like let's get everyone worked up, like not only in this area, but all over the world. Let's get radicals and let's get anarchists and let's get uh, union members. Let's paint these guys as just like hardworking blue collar union dudes, and let's get people all over the world." paying attention to what's going on over here.
3: Yes, which is a very common tactic still in use today. Just turn public sentiment against the government and the prosecutors in their case and um, basically paint it like Sacco and Vanzetti were just a couple of normal dudes who were being railroaded for for political reasons and uh, probably out of a a certain amount of xenophobia as well.
1: Sure, so... Uh, Well, let's take a break. The trial opens in May of 1921 with Judge Mm -hmm. Webster Thayer. And uh, we'll be back with what happens next right after this.
2: Your perfect home,
3: sweet home. Chuck, before we get back into it, I want to give a shout out to Doug Linder, Douglas Linder, who's a law professor and historian who um, wrote a paper that we used as a source that was pretty pretty handy, pretty good stuff.
1: Yeah, law professors... I mean, there's a lot of good information out here on this, mm-hmm. but uh, you get a law professor on the on the typewriter, and they're going to condense it into a nice, readable, workable document.
3: That's right. That's well, what they do. They're yeah. very
1: good at that. Yes. So, all right, trial's underway. Um, like I said before, Judge Webster Thayer proceeds over this trial. Um, Katzman, uh, that's the DA that's prosecuting. He has got a lot of circumstantial evidence. He has eyewitnesses, but not really a lot of hard evidence going on. Right. It's sort Um, of a tough case for him to like solidly prove.
3: Yeah. And that that was another reason why um, Fred Moore was able to run around drumming up public sentiment, not just in the United States or even just Boston or Massachusetts, but around the world, um, that, that that that. Sacco and Vanzetti were being railroaded is that the the evidence against them was really really weak. Um the eyewitness testimony was super um if you if you had the luxury like historians like Douglas Linder have had to compare, you know, um the original notes or the original statements made by eyewitnesses um, against the, the, the types of statements they made in court, the statements they made in court were much more certain, much more sure. And this was after a year of reading the newspaper and being exposed to pictures of Sacco and Vanzetti. So when they see Sacco and Vanzetti in the courtroom, they're like, yes, I saw that man holding that gun, and he was the one that pulled the trigger. The thing is, there was not one witness... But there were witnesses who placed both of them at the crime scene, or at least in the Buick around town on that day. But there was not one single witness who placed both of them there. That's just the eyewitnesses. They also had the other big piece of circumstantial evidence were the guns that they were found with. Um, and they used ballistic experts to come in and say, yes, this bullet came from this gun. But again, looking at it with history, the, high, the benefit of history, um, this was at a time when when ballistics comparison was just beginning to come around. And the people that they employed as ballistics experts were self-taught amateurs who just basically had an interest in this field, were in no way, shape, or form genuine experts because you could make a case there was no such thing as a genuine ballistics comparison expert at the time. It was too new as far as forensic goes.
1: Yeah, so on the defense side, um, immediately they say those guys weren't even in Braintree. Uh, Saka was in Boston. Um, Vancetti was in Plymouth. The both both sides. It's it's interesting to look back on this trial because both the prosecution and the defense were like being very hinky with the truth themselves, mm-hmm. um, influencing people on both sides to testify, kind of behind the scenes. Um, Fred Moore, the defense attorney, trotted out a bunch of witnesses that say, no, like Vanzetti was definitely in Plymouth. He's a fishmonger, bought fish from him. And then later on, it was found out that some of these people, well, all of them basically were friends of his. And then Mm -hmm. some of the people came out even later and said, yeah, he kind of told me to say this. But that happened on the prosecution side too.
3: Yeah, supposedly um, later on, uh, they would allege that the prosecutor, um, Katzman. And the chief or the lead ballistics or the star ballistics witness had kind of coordinated the answer that the ballistics witness would give at trial, and that it would be much more stronger and much um much more certain than he than the actual conclusion he came to uh prior to the trial based on his original ballistics tests
1: yeah so there's there's hinkiness on both sides um Katzman has this hat, and I remember one of the gunmen definitely had on. A a gray cap. So he has this gray cap. He said, "This is Sacco's." He gets together with an expert behind the scenes and says, "And again, with this like, like you were saying, sort of the beginnings of uh, not ballistics in this case, but just um, forensics, any kind of forensics." Yeah, they he looked at the hairs in the hat, got a hair from Sacco, and Sacco was like, "Ow, that hurt!" And he compared (laughs) them, and he said, "Yeah, these hairs are identical. I'm telling you, they're the same hairs." But Katzman was like, you know what, I don't want to go to court uh, and present this because this stuff is all new. They're going to paint you as unreliable because no one knows anything about hair comparison yet. So instead of doing that, he goes to the boss of the shoe factory, George Kelly, and was like, have you seen this hat before? And Kelly said, yes, that's Socko's hat. I've seen him wear that hat and the hole in it is from the nail that he hangs it on every day when, in fact, that was definitely not the case.
3: No, that earlier, the previous pre- police chief later testified that he had ex- accidentally punched the hole in the hat while he was examining it for any kind of identifying
1: marks. Yeah, which is weird.
3: He, he also testified that the hat had a very um, questionable provenance, that it hadn't come into police custody for 30 hours oh, after yeah. the crime. So he couldn't say, he, he as far as he knew, it was not found at the crime scene, that it hadn't been secured by the police. He didn't know exactly where it came from. And then finally, I read elsewhere, in a final twist, and tell, stop me if this sounds familiar, but they asked Sacco, To put the hat on in court, and it was too small for his head. It didn't fit. You must acquit. They did not acquit, though.
1: Well, we'll you just ruined it.
3: Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) That's okay. Sorry, everybody. It's funny. There's probably a lot of people out there who have no idea how this is going to turn out. Because if you search on Google, just Sacco and Vanzetti, one of the suggested questions is, what is Sacco and Vanzetti? (laughs) Not who, what?
1: It's a nice uh, aperitif. Right. So, um, I don't know if we mentioned, but, like, Sacco had definitely much more evidence against him, even if it was circumstantial, than Vanzetti did. Yeah, a lot more
3: eyewitnesses, yeah.
1: For sure. So, Vanzetti is, has the thinnest case against him. But he, like, he lied to the cops. Um, he had that gun, remember? And mm-hmm. on the stand, he said, yeah, actually, I got that gun just a few days ago. Uh, Bought it for four or five bucks. And they're like, well, you told us that you bought it four or five years ago for $18. Right. You said there were six uh, chambers in it and only had five. Mm -hmm. And what's going on here? You're lying to me, Vanzetti.
3: The whole thing with the gun, I don't know if we've said or not yet. The reason why the gun was so suspicious and was basically like the central piece of evidence used against – Vanzetti is that it was supposedly the exact same kind of gun that Alessandro Berardelli had on him when he was killed, yeah, so the the whole the whole idea was that um Vanzetti had been at the at least at the crime scene, if not one of the killers, who had taken Baradelli's gun after he had killed him and made off with it, which would explain why he wasn't very familiar with the gun and how many chambers it had, and didn't have a very solid story about where he'd gotten it and how long he'd owned it too. That was the implication of the whole thing. And that was basically the—that was it. That was the crux of the prosecution's case against Vanzetti. Vanzetti's big problem was he was sitting next to Sacco when Sacco got taken off the train, and they had a lot more on Sacco, and they were tried together rather than separately.
1: Yeah, and Sacco, that ballistics evidence made a big, big difference in the trial because they found out for sure that that bullet that killed— uh, Berardelli was definitely fired from a Colt automatic. Mm-hmm. Um, and your Colt automatic is what they alleged. Right. And, uh, well, we'll, we'll hold on to that last bit till later, but, um, about what was found out later about that. But, um, it, it, I think even some of the jurors said that that was really some of the most compelling evidence, uh, against Sacco for us in deciding this case.
3: Yeah, and again, like, they're listening to forensic evidence from a field that's still in the very, in its cradle, from testimony given by people who are not experts. But that was, like you said, the juror said this was, that was it for me. That was what convinced me was the ballistics evidence, basically.
1: So, they go to a jury, and they go to deliberations, and just five and a half half hours later, the jury Mm -hmm. said, Guilty as charged.
3: About six weeks after the trial started, I believe.
1: Yeah, so it was a big deal. You know, like, uh, Sacco's crying out, I'm innocent, and Italian in the court. Um, there were, like, protests all over the world, like South America, France, uh, Lisbon. It's just crazy how much this, at the time in the 1920s, mm-hmm. became an international thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, basically, they were due for the electric chair. So people all over the world were protesting. There were bombings. Um, it was nuts.
3: Yeah, this is—I mean, this is a time when labor was unionized, so you could arouse the sympathy of a lot of people at once by going to the union hall and saying like, hey, your your brothers-in-arms over there uh, in America are being railroaded into a murder rap. They're going to be electrocuted in the electric chair for something they didn't commit simply because of their political beliefs. How messed up is that? And they—you you could arouse some, some people pretty quickly back then by saying that, as opposed to today—
1: yeah, for sure. Um, Moore immediately starts uh, – the defense attorney immediately starts uh, filing motions, uh, trying to get, like, new trials. Uh, there was, he had an assistant uh, named Eugene Lyons who later would come out and say, man, like, this guy basically would do anything. Um, he was framing evidence. He was telling witnesses what to say. Like, once he had it up in his mind that – and keep in mind, this was like a radical lawyer from California – He said once he had in mind that these guys uh, were innocent, he was like he, he basically would do anything to try and get them off.
3: Yeah, he'd suborn perjury. He'd intimidate witnesses. He he'd do whatever if he thought that somebody was being innocently prosecuted. Fred Moore would stop at nothing to to yeah to get them off. And this article I think kind of paints an incomplete picture of Eugene Lyons and Fred Moore's relationship. Like Eugene Mott Lyons was also very much an admirer of Fred Moore too. Um, like he considered Fred Moore to have the heart of an artist, but he was um de- he had dedicated his life to. Getting people who are being steamrolled by the system or unfairly treated by the courts uh, out from under these these charges. He was a he was a, a an early civil liber- civil liberties lawyer. Basically, is what he
1: was. Yeah. So none of these motions work. He files a bunch of them. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not going to detail them all, but none of them uh, none of them worked. They were basically uh, all turned down. Thayer was still the presiding judge. He was turning down all these things. Then they went to, like, federal court. They were turning down motions. Eventually they went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court was like, why are you asking us about this? Like, we mm-hmm. this is a state case. Like, we, we don't even do this kind of thing.
3: Yeah, the, the court at the time was very much against, um, or the majority, I should say, was against applying uh, the con- federal constitution to state Issues so they wouldn't get involved. But um, I mean, it did go all the way to at least petitioning the Supreme Court. They wouldn't hear it and they wouldn't stay the execution either. Um, but he, as much as a lawyer can exhaust petitions and appeals for clemency, um, And and the stay of execution, Fred Moore did. And then later on, another defense lawyer named William Thompson, who took over for Fred Moore after Sacco fired Fred Moore, um, did the same thing. Like up to the eve, the eve of the execution, they were relentless in filing appeals with anything, anything they could get their hands on. Um, They filed an entire motion for a new trial based strictly on Judge Thayer's perceived uh, uh, prejudice against um, anarchists. Apparently, he did not like anarchists, and he treated Sacco and Vanzetti as such um, throughout the the trial. Um, and as you're, if you're just watching watching this from the outside, if you're reading about this in the press, and you're already on Sacco and Vanzetti's side, Judge Thayer turning down motion after motion after motion after motion um, looks really bad. It looks very much like this judge is bent on railroading these two. Immigrant anarchists into an an early and unjust death by electric chair. So the the um, the public's sympathies were aroused even further for Sacco and Vanzetti, and that would last for decades after this trial, a century almost now.
1: Yeah. So Sacco's in jail, and another a weird thing happens while he's in jail at uh in uh, Dedham, D E D H A M. There was another prisoner there. Uh, who passed a note on, and said basically, uh, "I'm confessing to this crime." Uh, my name is uh, Celestino Medeiros. and they were like, "All right, well, let's let's talk to this guy. He's confessing to this crime, mm-hmm. and saying that Sacco and Vincetti are innocent." Uh, he said, "I was there. I was um, with uh, four other guys, so that kind of checks out as far as the the five Italians." He said, we met in uh, Providence at a bar, and we just came up with this plan. He said, there was a guy named Mike, a guy named Bill. I don't know the other guys. I was scared. We switched cars in the woods. Like, all this stuff was sort of making sense. Um, But it really didn't, like, in the end, uh, there were too many other things that were wrong. Uh, Like, he said that they didn't get there till afternoon, and everyone was like, no, that car was there, like, maybe between 9 a.m. and noon. Mm -hmm. Um, he also said that the payroll money was in a bag when it was in a metal box. And so there were enough inconsistencies basically where, uh, he wasn't really a major suspect. Like they considered it. Thompson tried to use it as the basis for a new trial, but none of this worked because Thayer was still kind of calling the shots. This is before they Mm -hmm. ran it up the flagpole.
3: Yeah, but again, news made made its way out into the international press that someone had confessed and not only confessed said that Sacco and Vanzetti weren't there, and this this judge who headed out for Sacco and Vanzetti refused to even hear this this motion to uh, to have a new trial. So it looked it looked bad as well too.
1: It did. So it looked <clears> bad <throat> enough that the governor at the time, Alvin Fuller, said, "You know what? We have to do something here.
3: Mm-hmm. There's
1: just too much public pressure going on from around the world." He said, so here's what we'll do. We'll get a a three-person advisory committee. They're going to investigate this. He said, hey, you, uh, Lawrence Lowell, you're the president of Harvard. You had this thing up. Uh, And then what was known as the Lowell Commission um, finally issued a report uh, which said, basically, uh, beyond a reasonable doubt, Sacco is guilty. Uh, And Vanzetti said, uh, on the whole, it's our opinion that he's also guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Right. And everyone was like, well, why'd you say all those other words then?
3: And they're like, what other words?
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, really kind of a strange final report. What's funny is in the Boston area, if they're like, we
3: need somebody smart, get me the president of Harvard.
1: <laughs> well, yeah. And in the end, he's like, you are definitely guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. And so are you more or less in our opinion.
3: Right, no, I know it was weird, and it's, it remains weird. But apparently, years later, when Lowell was uh, asked about that, he was saying like, "No, that wasn't an indication that we thought Vanzetti had any kind of um, any kind of uh, innocence to him, or that he wasn't guilty." Um, I, I'm not sure exactly how he explained it, but he basically said, "No, that wasn't. That's not what that was." Oh, interesting. I don't know what he thought it was. There was a weird way to put it, but that was. I think the other thing that kind of arouses people's interest in that or suspicion maybe even is that that's what a lot of people think, that Sacco was definitely guilty. Yeah. I shouldn't say a lot, but some people, that Sacco was definitely guilty and if anyone was innocent, it was Vanzetti. So the idea that this Lowell Commission came up with this back in the 20s even um, is is significant. But yeah, Lowell was like, no, that's not what we meant by that.
1: So none of these stays of execution uh, go through. Mm -hmm. So they are... Uh, reunited, They were split up in jail for many, many years, um, six years, and then they were finally reunited at Charlestown State Prison uh, for execution in April. And uh, they had like you, – you wouldn't believe how many cops they have in this town uh, to cover this thing because it was sort of one of the first crimes of the century, I think. And people were mad all over the country and all over the world like we've been talking mm-hmm. about. They didn't know if there were going to be more bombings. People were going to, like, literally storm the prison and try and overtake them and free them. So they had tons and tons of cops everywhere. Uh, Sacco is first to go. And as they are strapping him in, he's crying out in Italian, long live anarchy. And then in English, very quietly, he says, farewell, my wife and child and all my friends. And uh, right when they finally threw the switch, he screamed out, Mama. (laughs) And I don't think like that. No, no. I'm not making light of it. I don't think he was like, whoa, mama. No, I don't think
3: so either. I think he was calling for his mother. Yes. Which is pretty sad. Right. But also kind of sweet. Yes. Um, And then Vanzetti comes in, and he's like, oh, it's my turn, huh? All right, well, okay. Uh, I want to make sure everybody knows that I am innocent. Um, So I think it's significant that... Saka was the one that shouted in the courtroom that he was innocent, but didn't during his execution. Yeah, And Vanzetti didn't say anything in the courtroom, but during his execution, he's like, I'm innocent. And not only that, he really turned the screwdriver. He said, I want to make it known that I forgive all of you who are about to do this to me.
1: And he started crying.
3: Well, the warden started crying when he gave the, uh, the switch, he gave the nod to, turn, to throw the switch on the electric chair and kill Vanzetti.
1: Tears flowing everywhere. Yeah. High, high drama.
3: Yes. I'm surprised. But has this dead. been a movie? Surely it has been, but I'll bet it was in like the 70s or something. We just aren't aware of it. Like Warren Beatty played Sacco and Vanzetti in some weird casting.
1: <laughs> and somehow Jeremy Renner played all <laughs> the cops.
3: He Right, Exactly. <laughs> Um, It's very strange movie. So, Sacco and Vanzetti are dead. Like, they're dead. The state took their lives. They executed them. These conceivably innocent men who were railroaded to the electric chair on circumstantial evidence and the testimony of some ballistic experts who were not experts by anyone's measure. Um, These men are now dead. And the world reacts um, predictably. There were riots. Six people died in a riot in Germany. Um, the the American embassy in Paris had already been bombed, so they, uh, they brought tanks out on the night of the execution uh, and surrounded it this time, and there were no bombings. Um, there were riots in Geneva, Switzerland, This may have been the only time anyone ever rioted in Geneva, Switzerland. Um, There were like 5,000 protesters who destroyed everything that was even passingly American. Um, And Sacco and Vanzetti went into the history books as a couple of innocent men who were executed wrongfully by the state because of their political beliefs. They were political prisoners who were executed for their beliefs, basically, is how most people have come to see Sacco and Vanzetti.
1: Yeah, but uh, many years later, a couple of uh, – a few notable things happened. Um, in 1941, that gentleman I mentioned earlier, the Carl, uh, Carlo Tresca, the anarchist leader, uh, a couple of years before he died in the 1940s, basically said, you know what, Saka was guilty. He was a trigger man, but Vansetti was not guilty. Um, other people had heard this same thing from Tresca. Mm-hmm. And then in 1961, they had um, actual ballistics tests done – And, uh, it was concluded that, uh, that was in fact a bullet from Sacco's gun, but people still were saying, no, you know what? I think that bullet was planted. So we render that inconclusive.
3: But I think Doug Linder does a pretty good job of, of taking the planted bullet theory, fatal bullet or bullet number three is what it's called in the trial, um, and, and basically saying, no, this is why that doesn't really hold up. And probably the biggest one is um, when those ballistics witnesses gave their testimony, um, both of the prosecution's star ballistic witnesses said. Yes, uh, I would conclude probably that it came out of this gun or it's it's probable or possible or something like that. They couched their expert opinions when they gave their testimony. And if they were part of a conspiracy to frame Sacco in the planting of this bullet, they would have given much more forceful testimony, which— in and of itself is uh, circumstantial evidence against this planted bullet theory, but it draws so closely on common sense that I think it, it, it makes sense to me. It undermines the idea that the bullet was planted.
1: Yeah. Uh, there was another gentleman named uh, Giovanni Gambera who said, um, you know what, my dad, um, before he died in 1982, he told me he was on this team of uh, anarchists that met after their arrest to get their defense mounted And he told me and everyone said basically that Sacco was guilty and Vanzetti was innocent. And then weirdly, uh, in 2005, Upton Sinclair, the very famous author, Mm -hmm. said that he he was researching a book and he was going to write it. uh, He was writing a book about this whole thing. And he met with Fred Moore, the, the radical defense attorney that mounted the defense for basically most of the case. And he said he met with him in a hotel room and was like, dude, give me the real story. And he said that Moore told him, yeah, Sacco was guilty and um, Vansetti was innocent. And I basically came up with this whole defense on my own, like made all this stuff up.
3: Yeah. Yeah, years later, it came out that um, the seven eyewitnesses for the defense who said that they saw um, Sacco eating uh, Lunch in Boston at the time of the um, robbery in Braintree had all been set up by the uh, the defense, or at least by an anarchist group had, who had asked them to go perjure themselves. Yeah, and um, yeah, I think that kind of jibes with the Eugene Lyons quote that like if he thought these guys were innocent, they would do he would do anything to to get them off, including you know putting witnesses on the stand knowing that they were going to lie and telling them to lie. And this was a letter. From Upton Sinclair, based on an interview with Fred Moore, so it's it has it has a lot of teeth. But the 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 thing there was another letter from Upton Sinclair, another quote from Upton Sinclair, where he said that Fred Moore had confessed to him that um, Vanzetti was innocent, and he knew he was innocent, but he was pretty sure Sacco wasn't. But all he had to do was go to the the jury and say, hey you we all know that you don't have anything on Vanzetti there's no reason for you to 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 prosecute this man but he knew that if he did that the jury would be like well you're probably right but we're going to come down really hard on Sacco so he had this dilemma and he took it to to Vanzetti he said and Vanzetti said you know what try to save Nick Nicholas Sacco, um, he has the wife, he has the child, I don't. Try to get him off. So Vanzetti, in this retelling by Fred Moore, gave his life on the chance that uh, that Fred Moore could get Sacco off. Because if he got Sacco off, he'd get Vanzetti off. If he got Vanzetti off, he would almost surely sink um, Sacco. And Vanzetti wouldn't take the uh, take the opportunity to 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 be acquitted. At the expense of Sacco, which is pretty amazing. Amazing. Yep. So that's Sacco and Vanzetti, everybody. That's what a Sacco and Vanzetti
1: is. Now you know. I guess one guilty and one innocent. That's what it sounds like. That's what it sounds like.
3: If you want to know more about Sacco and Vanzetti, go look up Doug Linder. I believe he has a whole site on true crime, and there's plenty of other stuff uh, out there that we found, too, on the Internet about Sacco and Vanzetti and their famous trial. And uh, since I said Sacco and Vanzetti like 80 times, it's time for Listener Mail.
1: Uh, I'm going to call this response to a short stuff. Oh, um, boy. Yeah, right. Hey, guys, uh, your show is one of my favorite podcasts, so much so that I've taken to listening to it while I get ready for work. Whoa. <laughs> so we know that is your sacred time. Yeah. Nadine. Um, I just finished <laughs> the episode on Black Loyalist and immediately started to write the email... I'm a Rhode Islander in Nova Scotia for work and got so excited to hear a little piece of Nova Scotia's history on there. Uh, I looked into the Loyalist Heritage Museum, but it only has weekday operations, so I don't think I'll be able to make it there. I'll definitely do some exploring of Halifax, though, in the coming weeks, and we'll be on the lookout for more information. I just wanted to mention on the show that it was uh, Josh said that Rhode Island may not have ever had slaves, Um, Actually, we were the first state to abolish slavery in 1652, but the Mm -hmm. law was mostly ignored, and we ended up with the most slaves per capita of any colony.
3: I did not know that.
1: Uh, We also had a pretty booming slave trade in uh, Newport, Rhode Island, now known for their Gilded Aged Splendor, a piece of Rhode Island history I'm sure most don't learn in history class that I wanted to shed light on. Uh, Thanks for always putting out a funny and informative and entertaining show. That is from Nadine Grieg. Thanks a lot, Nadine. That was great.
3: Uh, thanks for listening while you get ready for work. Hope work's going well up there in Nova Scotia. Uh, just think spring to you and everybody up there in Nova Scotia, frankly. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, you can join us on stuffyoushouldknow.com. Check out our uh, social links there. Uh, and you can just send us a good old-fashioned email. Wrap it up, spank it on the bottom, and send it off to stuffpodcast at howstuffworks.com.